I'm Melissa Bell in Paris, and this is CNN. Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Limit up. Stocks surge pre-market after the worst day of trading since 1987. Mass disruption, cancellation and closures rise in response to the coronavirus outbreak. And tracking the spread, how artificial intelligence and social media is being used to monitor the virus. It's Friday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. Guys, we've made it to Friday after a historic week of trading seismic pullbacks, global corrections around the world. Just one more session. We will get there. And for now, you can see the picture. U.S. futures are well and truly green. The S&P 500 actually hitting its upper limit pre-market. So the opposite of what we were talking about yesterday. We're taking our cue from Europe. Stocks there bouncing as well after some incredibly beaten up levels and the performance yesterday. So while we have green arrows rather than the red arrows we were looking at yesterday, I'm reticent to add more. I have to tell you, the mood is still fragile. It was the worst one day trading for U.S. markets since the crash of 1987. It was the worst ever trading session for the European markets as well. Asia playing catch-up today in more ways than one. Like I mentioned, like we saw in the United States twice this week, trading was temporarily suspended in Japan today, South Korea, Indonesia, Thailand and the Philippines. The only outlier today, in fact, was Australia managing a 4% gain, but a gain from beaten up levels. What's moving futures higher today? Well, I can tell you, I've said it a few times, things are just so beaten up here. To have the odd pullback, a positive session actually makes sense at this stage. But there is, and this is important, growing expectations, I think, that policymakers are waking up, that we are going to see greater stimulus to support economies around the world. There's hopes that U.S. Congress can agree on stimulus measures today. There's even talk that Europe, Germany might start spending too, but the monetary side is also crucial. Central banks like the PBOC in China, the Federal Reserve, all ensuring that financial systems don't seize up, that banks still lend to businesses, to people. Governments can still borrow ultimately if they need to. This is a lesson that we've learned from the great financial crisis. But I have to say, as we've been saying here all week, this is a medical crisis that's creating an economic crisis. And we need to focus on cases and perhaps also how quickly the sick get well. Let's get to the drivers. Christine Romans joins me now. Christine, I, I don't know what to say about this. Incredibly beaten up levels, this shift lower the speed of the correction that we've seen here record-breaking as well yeah. a bit of a pause here on Friday would be welcome but also brewing expectations that policymakers are waking up yeah, and we heard, look, we heard from uh, Nancy Pelosi, the House Speaker, mm. uh, late last night that um, they were had resolved almost all their differences uh, with the White House and, and Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin over what kind of what kind of stimulus that the country should be embarking on. So there's some hope, and I, I don't want to I don't want to make too much of it, but there's some hope that maybe maybe they could do something here very very soon. I know the Treasury Secretary should be speaking momentarily on another uh, television network, so we'll listen very carefully to see if there's any kind of progress that uh, both the White House and uh, Congress can. 
can can talk about there. But also, I think you have expectations for just a bounce from these lows. I mean, a snapback here this morning. You know, we've only had well, this would be the fourth move higher in three or four weeks, three and a half weeks. And those moves have been ferocious when they come. But they've also been uh, uh, temporary. Right. They've been found with more um, followed by more more selling. So I just think it's it's such a an interesting and maybe dangerous moment here right now because we don't have clarity what kind of damage all of this uh, social distancing and uh, this pause on a strong economy. And it is a strong economy. We hit the pause button on a strong economy. What is that going to do? How long will it take? And will it, you know, help us on the public health crisis part of this story, uh, but hurt us on the economic side of the story? It's such a great point. There's no economic model for a systematic shutdown of, of pockets of the economy. So whatever we've seen in the past, this is something completely different. And I think we've been grappling with that now. And to your point about the fact that we've simply not seen uh, green for so many sessions is why I don't trust it at this stage, given, given the volatility. <laughs> um, the Federal Reserve yesterday, I, I want to mention what they did as well. That provision of cash, at least in the short term, we have learned lessons that despite what's going on on the medical side, the pullback that we've seen, the, the struggle, the financial gap that it's going to create for, for businesses and for people as well, you've got to keep the system greased. You've got to keep yes. the system working. And, and we have learned that lesson at least. And, and we have. And you can see that the Fed is standing ready. And that's why there's been some of this criticism uh, that Congress uh, hasn't done more. There's been criticism on the other side of that. That that, And this is what I kind of funny in a, in a terrible kind of gallows humor sort of way that uh, Wall Street, which has been fearing sort of socialism in the, in the name of Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren is now clamoring for stimulus from the federal government to try to get it out of this mess, which is a little bit ironic. Uh, but that's where we are at this moment where the markets are saying they'd like to see more. Uh, Ken Rogoff, who of course is a famous crisis economist, says we need more stimulus quickly. Uh, Mohammed El Arian says that you need to have a package rolled out very quickly with you know three different phases really of stimulus to help people, to help people, to help workers, to help people who aren't working, to help businesses, and then also to manage for what could be you know the tail of this when you're trying to restart an economy that has been stopped. All of this, really, you're right to point out that we just have never seen a crisis quite like this, a public health crisis, trying to make sure it doesn't turn into a financial crisis. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're going to tell people to be responsible and to stay at home, you have to support them because if they need to earn money, they're right. going to go to work no matter what's going on, quite frankly. So um, measures required. Christine Romans, great to have you with us. Thank you, you so too. much. All right, to Washington now, as Christine mentioned. U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says congressional negotiators are close to a deal with the White House on a coronavirus relief package. Coronavirus cases in the United States have now jumped to around 1,700. Joe Johns is live at the White House for us. Uh, Joe, Nancy Pelosi also said testing, testing, testing to reporters. In the absence of that, what can Congress do? What are the details of whatever they can hopefully agree to today that will, at least in the interim, provide some degree of support? Well, we're really watching very closely to try to get some mm. sense as to what they're going to put out there. But we do know a little bit about the plan that Nancy Pelosi says uh, has is 
close to being agreed to. And that sounds like quite a large plan. As you mentioned, the issue of testing, what Democrats on Capitol Hill are pushing is a notion of testing for everyone who wants it for the coronavirus, including people who do not have insurance. So that's the first peg of the plan that she talked about in a letter that she sent out to colleagues just last night. Uh, there's also enhanced unemployment insurance paid emergency leave. That's 14 days worth of emergency leave and some other things thrown in there. These are the ideas that Nancy Pelosi is pushing up on Capitol Hill. She's been in contact with Steven Mnuchin, who is the president's treasury secretary. Uh, there was a tweet just a little while ago from the deputy chief of staff of Nancy Pelosi saying that Mnuchin and Pelosi spoke on the phone uh, just uh, an hour and a half or so ago. So there is hope that something could be passed by the House of Representatives as early as today. Uh, to try to get the ball moving in the economy, then it'll be up to the United States Senate. They're out today, but they are expected to come back next week and work on this package. Uh, the president does have some concerns, of course. He even tweeted this morning that the thing he's most interested in is a payroll tax cut. He's been pushing it again and again. He said uh, that is the thing, in his view, that will make a real difference. So uh, we'll see what they come up with. Hopefully Mnuchin will be out here in a little while, and maybe we can get a few questions to him. Back to you. Yeah, payroll tax cut sounds great, but how on earth do you quantify the cost of that? And it just doesn't have the vote, so keep tweeting. Joe Johns. Absolutely. Great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. Now. The show won't go on. From Broadway to NBA basketball to Disneyland and now football, the Premier League in Europe, or at least in the UK, no large-scale event seemingly immune from the coronavirus shutdown. Anna Stewart joins me now. Anna, we are seeing this all over the developed world. Mass gatherings are steadily but surely being cancelled, delayed, postponed. But I also want to hone in on what isn't being shut down. The tube in London, the subway here in New York City, there's a recognition as well that you simply can't stop. And when it's key workers, like healthcare workers, they simply have to do their job and we have to support that as well. It's a really important point. All the headlines, of course, are regarding those big events, particularly sporting events that have been shut down. Disneyland, we can show you some of those on your screen. But as you say, in many countries where you are in New York, where I'm in London, not much has changed. The tube still works. Most schools, hospitals, nursing homes are all still open and operating as usual. And what we see here is a really broad spectrum as to how countries deal with coronavirus. You've got Italy very much on one end of the spectrum. And of course, it is a very badly impacted country in terms of the virus itself, but it's essentially under lockdown. Schools, bars, restaurants, shops, all shut. Here in the UK, there's less focus actually on containment the country doesn't believe it can self-isolate the whole population. They say they just want to delay the virus and try and push it further into the year so when the National Health Service isn't as under pressure from other sort of winter-related illnesses. Also, as you were mentioning earlier, the social and economic impact of some containment measures have to be weighed up and measured. For instance, if you shut down schools, elderly grandparents may end up looking after children. Now, they are an at-risk category, and so that could produce further fatalities, increased fatalities. Equally, school shutdown, parents may have to look after children, and that means a more of an economic fallout and much sooner than perhaps needs to be. And as we're being told, this virus may last not weeks, but months. Julia? This is so critical. I think as we see more and more leaders trying to analyze and scramble to address how to tackle this, that 
interesting point about what impact school closures have, bringing grandparents in perhaps if you simply don't have the childcare and that subset of the population, at least so far, the data suggests is the most vulnerable. This is so crucial, Anna. The other thing, and I was just mentioning it briefly with Christine Romans, we have to be responsible as workers. Governments have to support if you don't get paid, if you don't go to work. Because if you're sick, if you go to the office, this thing multiplies. We have to behave responsibly. Governments can do what they can on the fiscal policy side of things, and we're seeing that in many countries. And then it comes down to you. You know, we're being told, wash your hands regularly and thoroughly for a minimum of 20 seconds. You can sing happy birthday to yourself twice over, or I'm using Wannabe by the Spice Girls. Uh, don't touch your face. Don't make contact with people if you don't have to. You know, forego the handshake. Try the tap of the foot. It's quite fun. Um, and if you are on the tube and someone's coughing or sneezing, just simple things, just moving away. And of course, if you are the one that is coughing or sneezing, take yourself home. Now is not the time for stoicism. Workers do need to self-isolate and consider the people that they are around. But these measures are really quite simple and effective. Julia? Yeah, it won't last forever. Just got to be responsible now. Anna Stewart, thank you so much for that. All right, in just a few hours, restrictions on European flights coming into the United States take effect. One of the few countries that excluded is that it's excluded from the President Donald Trump's ban is the UK, of course. Nick Robertson joins us now and is at London's Heathrow Airport. Nick, great to have you with us. I was looking at flight availability, though, between the UK and the United States uh, overnight and this morning. And quite frankly, there are no flights. So it, it feels like this system has already stopped. There's some people we've spoken to here today are finding that uh, a couple, uh, American couple on holiday in Spain got a call in the middle of the night from their children saying get back home as fast as you can. They got to the airport in Spain. They found uh, that they couldn't fly directly back to the United States, that they flew to London instead. They said that they were lucky enough to get a ticket here, but are now still trying to figure out how to make that last hop across the Atlantic. Other people we've been talking to, luckier in the ticket lines, uh, saying that they've had to been told either by their universities uh, who are on exchange programs or uh, a couple here on business and pleasure we spoke to said look uh, president trump's message was garbled we're not sure if he'll put those restrictions in to apply to the united kingdom coming up and therefore they were getting home as quickly as possible what they all said was though um, that they were paying a lot more for their tickets to do that the british prime minister has really laid out for the british people but for all those visitors here in the uk as well what is in store coming up and it's not a good picture this is how he laid it out this is the worst public health crisis for a generation. Some people compare it to seasonal flu. Alas, that is not right. Owing to the lack of immunity, this disease is more dangerous and it's going to spread further. And I, I must level with you, level with the, the British public. Um, more families, uh, many more families are going to lose loved ones before their time. Nick, maybe I'm more susceptible to this because I'm a Brit, but when I look at the leadership responses around the world and I watched his entire speech, it actually, it hit me that this was someone who was going, this is the reality of it. This is what we have to deal with. And this is how we're going to have to deal with it. Do you agree? 
I do. Uh, the British government's been trying to sort of bring people along gently, not push them into, you know, into situations that they don't think that they can withstand, like the long times, you know, children being off school, like not going to, uh, to, to crowded areas. They've been trying to keep the message um, gently ramping it up. The Prime Minister's clearly ramped it up. But I think what's really interesting here is whatever the leaders are saying, you know, what we're finding here talking to people, people get it. They get what this is about. I asked some of those passengers going back to the United States, you know what you're leaving behind here in the UK? Do you feel you're going to be safer from the virus in the United States? Uh, they said absolutely not. And I think, you know, people are struck. They've heard what we've heard, all heard from the British uh, chief scientific advisor to the prime minister today saying that, you know, it is almost necessary for populations to catch the virus because as populations, we need uh, we need um, sort of immunity. And the only way that you can get that, what he called herd immunity, is for enough of the population to catch the virus so we're safe from it next time. I think all these messages are beginning to take root. And whether people's own leaders are telling them, whether you're in Canada and you see your prime minister um, now in isolation with his wife because she's tested positive, there's enough information out there for everyone to understand, even if their leaders aren't leveling up or aren't just putting that information uh, out publicly yet. And that's our job too. Nick, thank you. Such an important reality check. It's dawning and we have to accept it and do what we can and we carry on. Thank you. Nick Robertson there. Hmm. Let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories that are making headlines around the world. Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is in self-isolation after his wife tested positive for coronavirus. The measure is a precaution as he's not currently experiencing symptoms. He will continue to carry out his duties. Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro also currently awaiting for the results of a coronavirus test. This after his press secretary tested positive for the virus. Mr. Bolsonaro and the press secretary met with President Trump in Florida the past weekend. USS flights hit several Iranian-backed militia sites in Iraq overnight. The bombing was in response to a rocket attack that killed two Americans and a British service member Wednesday. It's the first time an American has been killed in Iraq since December. All right, we're going to take a break here on First Move. But coming up, we've got trading about to start in the United States. We are counting down to a strong market rebound, bouncing admittedly from pretty beaten up levels. We'll explore the reasons and whether it's justified after this. We're back on Tuesday with CNN. To the New York Stock Exchange and first move. We are counting down to another volatile session. The volatility continues, but for this session, we are expecting a higher open, and that is the picture. The Dow set to bounce more than 1,000 points. S&P futures hit their limit up a few hours ago, so once again, we use exchange trade of funds that track these markets. Right now, they're showing a rise of around 5.5%. Just a further example of the, the massive swings that we've seen on a daily basis here with majors that the majors have fallen some 26 percent just to give you a sense from record highs it's the swiftest plunge into bear market on record oil also moving higher for the first time in three days we've got brent and wti up what some five percent right now uh, yeah we're struggling to uh, show you what's going on there a few uh, 
technical glitches, but that again is an illustration of the markets. All has been on track for its worst week since 1991. Let's get some context. Stryden Pence is the Chief Investment Officer for Pence Wealth Management and joins us now. Fantastic to have you uh, on the show, sir. Your perspective, is this an understandable reaction, the pullback, the speed, or are we at the stage where we can call this an overreaction? I think it's an overreaction because you have an issue of fear in here and a little little hysteria worked into the market. And you're seeing these big moves in and out. So I think the market overreaction uh, is there. And the thing we have to do is kind of combat that with a little uh, calmness and taking a look at really what happens here. Because the period of time that this is going to affect the economy itself is not that long. This is probably a 60, 90, maybe 120-day phenomenon. But it is not something that's going to wipe the economy out for an entire year. It's something people get over this in about 14 days. And then they're going to be able to go back to doing what they're doing. So this is, I think there's an overreaction to this, but we're seeing Matt good, strong policy response. And I think that we'll begin to see that almost on a daily basis. And that's going to help recover from this. I think a lot of the problem that's been created here is the inability to gauge in terms of numbers, in terms of, of cases. You said something there that I think is very interesting. You said actually we perhaps need to focus less on cases and counting and testing and, and talk about how quickly people get well and how many in terms of proportion get well from this. That is exactly right. The most important number here is not how many people get sick, but rather how quickly they get well. Most 80% of these cases are mild. Uh, and you're over it in 14 days, uh, it's uncomfortable, but it's not the end of the world. And then you're able to go back and go back your life. And you've built up the antibodies in your system during that period of time. So the most important number here is how quickly people get well. And that way they can get back to their lives. We can get back to a relatively normal uh, economic trend that we were on before this started. And that's about 14 days. So you're, in your view, we're talking about perhaps two quarters, a technical recession, but then a swift pickup? Because a lot of the debate as well, and I think, again, the fear that we're seeing in markets is that inability to, or willingness to put a time horizon on this, but also whether it's a V-shaped pickup or a U-shape, because that matters too. I think the most important thing here is to understand time. Time for reaction for governments, time for reaction for people, time for reaction for markets. Markets tend to react more quickly, and in this case, they overreacted, we think. Uh, but I think that we recognize you've got about 14 days as people start getting better. Because it's not uniform as how this is affecting the world, it's more of a rolling period. And that's why we're saying it's a 60 to 90 day event. Uh, before people are beginning to get back to get back and government responses are going to kind of bridge people on these two to four week periods and that's going to help take care of the the economic risk that people see to the market and now what we need to do is focus on for the markets taking the emotional risk out of the market uh, and let people get begin to get back to normal certainly there's a health risk this is going to get worse before it gets better every day you're going to see bigger numbers as we do more testing but that's kind of a 
result of what's already out there in the environment as it is. And so I think the thing is, for people don't need to overreact to that. We know that part of it's bad. But again, people get well. We have now 100,000 data points on this illness. And those 100,000 data points say that the mortality rate is lower than some of the other viruses that we've seen and that the recovery rate is a reasonable period of time. Dryden, we're running out of time, so I'm going to finish there with you. But I know the stocks that you've come on to talk to us about before, the Amazons, the Visa, the MasterCards, you're arguing are still the right buys. And these are resilient in this kind of environment. In fact, this environment plays to those stocks. We will get you back on the show to discuss that. But for now, I think even just a, the reality check and a different way of thinking about what's going on was incredibly beneficial. Dryden Pence, thank you so much for joining us. We Absolutely. are counting down. We're counting down to the market open this morning. A real shift on what I was here, or at least on this show, discussing with you yesterday. Look at that. Strong gains expected at the market open. We'll be here. We'll be covering it. Stay with us. We're back after this. first move live from the New York Stock Exchange. That was the opening bell and I think the clearest illustration of what's going on right now, just one individual on that balcony ringing the bell. Social distancing. You have it there front and centre. Now, we've gone from route to relief, at least for this session. US stocks are bouncing significantly in early trading. A bit of respite from the fierce selling of the last two sessions. Stocks fell just shy of a 10% drop yesterday. Just to once again illustrate what we're talking about there. That was the worst session that we've seen for US majors since the crash of 1987. The Dow fell some 2,000 points. I think what's also helping or at least what we're seeing is a significantly firmer 10-year Treasury yield. We're at 93 basis points, just shy of 1% there, which is, um, which is pretty important, remember, because we did see the Federal Reserve adding cash, short-term cash to the system just to stabilize what was going on in these markets. We've bounced off all-time lows, perhaps reflecting the need, I think, for investors to raise cash as well. We're still pricing in aggressive action next week by the Federal Reserve. Goldman Sachs and Deutsche Bank anticipate a rate cut of almost one full percentage point. Look at that. Goldman Sachs and Deutsche Bank are saying they were saying, in fact, that it could come as early as today. So they may not even have to wait for the meeting next week. They could simply decide to take some extra actions. Okay. So the key to controlling the coronavirus outbreak begins with tracking occurrences and seeing the spread and one piece of technology proved invaluable in the early days of the outbreak. The team behind the health map was the first to alert the medical experts outside of China about an unidentified pneumonia-like case in Wuhan in late December. Cases in Wuhan. Health map tracks the spread using AI that analyzes Google searches, social media posts, blogs, and other data. It's now being used in the early alerting and reporting project, an international collaboration among public health institutions that aims to quickly detect biological threats. 
John Brownstein is the founder of HealthMap and the chief innovation officer at Boston Children's Hospital. He's leading the team tracking the disease in the United States. John, it's so great to have you on the show. Did I describe what you're doing? You're simply looking at noise on, on social media, in blogs, in chat rooms, just to get a sense of where occurrences are taking place. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the reality is it's so difficult to get insights about what's happening on the ground. We know the challenges that governments have, even here in, in the U.S. and across Europe, the challenge of reporting cases. But what we actually can identify is people that are reporting illness or people that are talking about their own illness through social media, through blogs and chat rooms. And they were doing this early on in China, well before we were seeing official reporting. And that's why we were able to identify these events in late December, well ahead of what, what came through official channels. You know, this to me is, is fascinating. I can see some really obvious challenges as you look at what's going on across nations, culture, language barriers, when you're looking at things like social media. But I think the key one, and it's a challenge that we're talking about on a daily basis, how do you identify the difference between flu the coronavirus and a common cold. How are you managing to do that? How did you do that with Wuhan? Well, it's very challenging, of course, because yes, what we're talking about is a respiratory illness that looks very similar to what we see circulating every year. And so the challenge we have is identifying reports. Now, it turns out that local news is very good at, at looking for aberrations. And we saw this mysterious report of a cluster of cases around a seafood market and then chat room uh, discussion on Weibo and WeChat. And people are actually pretty tuned at looking for signals. And that's what we rely on. But of course, it's really challenging right now was we're seeing the global march of this virus and the cases that are accumulating around the world, we still have influenza and we have other viruses that are circulating. And so being able to distinguish is really challenging. Now, there are different symptom sets and we rely actually on tools even uh, within the US around crowdsourcing, uh, people submitting symptoms. And there's a slightly different set of symptoms people experience with coronavirus and flu. We can, we can separate that. But ultimately, what we want to do is connect all this data mining and crowdsourcing of people with mild illness with testing data. And that's really the sort of where this future of these technologies lie. It's not just about capturing. Yeah. Yes. Don't worry, John, I didn't say anything. Yes. I think you're hearing someone in your ear. But no, please continue. If, uh, if you can remember what you were saying there, you were simply saying it's about yeah, building no, so the idea is here. that Exactly. And so the idea is that we're trying to be able to basically build a picture that combines all the social media data with the reporting data, the testing data that we so incredibly need right now. And so when we can merge these data sets, we're going to get the clearest picture of what's happening with this outbreak. What is the picture that you're building in the United States? Because it ties for me directly to the to the fear, to the confusion that we're seeing in, in financial markets and for individuals as we simply don't really understand how big the outbreak is around the world, but here in the right. United States in particular, and given the debate over the lack of tests and testing, it almost comes down to your artificial intelligence and science helping us build that picture, and perhaps then we can better direct resources too. Right. 
it's a real challenge because what we're faced with is such a broad range of illness, and mostly people are experiencing mild illness, which means that they're not actually headed to the emergency department or urgent care clinics. So how do we even know what the real sort of depth of cases that are that exist? We've been working with various tools like chatbots, right, AI-driven conversational assistants that allow people, when they search on Google with a set of symptoms, they might interact with a chatbot, get insights about what they may have, and then from that point, they may decide to self-quarantine because of the fact that they don't have a test available. So integrating AI into what we do as a, you know, as a society, which is go online and search for our symptoms, actually can help us get a little bit faster into to curbing the spread of this disease while we're waiting for these tests to emerge. What's equally important here, John, for the economy, for individual people, just to keep nations going, cities going as best we can while we deal with this and to not exacerbate the, the shock that it's creating is to understand where fear and what the social impact of what we're seeing here is too. And I know this is something else that you look at. Where, where are you seeing panic? Can you separate that? And what role and responsibility is social media and traditional media playing here? Are they helping or are they hindering in your mind? What can we do better? It's, it's, it's a really great question. It's really, you sort of have this threading of a needle of the value of social media and the ways in which people use it in an altruistic way to, to sort of communicate important science, to actually engage in a conversation, to help educate people around the importance of, of say, social distancing. But there's also this sort of negative side, which is injection of rumors and issues around beliefs um, that may not be grounded in science. And in fact, part of our work has been tracking sort of not just the spread of disease, but the spread of rumors online. So the idea is on social media, you'll see a, a negative sort of viewpoint uh, sprout up and then that will spread like wildfire faster than anything that is a positive message that might come out from an agency like the WHO or CDC. And so we're tracking these rumors, trying to mine them because the more that we can collect these sort of mis information posts, we can try to counter it with signs, but it's really uh, uh, sort of dealing with a flood of these types of things and it's really challenging as a public health agency who's also trying to respond to an outbreak to also respond to the sort of social messaging that's happening. It's, a, it's sort of a real double-edged sword when we look at these social posts. Yeah, we've been reiterating on the show that we also have to look at recoveries and that in 80% of cases so far, the data is telling us that, that people have mild recoveries and we need to remember that as we as we deal with this, quite frankly, and try and keep some element of, of perspective. John, I know you've been speaking to the CDC here in the United States, the Center for Disease Control. What are you advising them and what measures work in your view? Because I know you trained as an epidemiologist as well, so I want to draw on epidemiology for the 21st century which this feels like versus <laughs> right. your traditional background here as well because we're seeing draconian measures in in Italy we've seen the flight cancellations between Europe and the United States what in your mind works now given the situation we're dealing with right. today well, we're moving to a different phase, right? The containment strategy, while maybe was a thoughtful, you know, at the beginning, we recognize that with a, a virus that spreads asymptomatically, it's really challenging to, to, to contain it. And so now we're in a mitigation phase. And so while, you know, there's debate around travel bans, the reality is this virus is already here locally uh, in the U.S. And, and many, many parts of the globe, most parts of the globe. And so now we're into a sort of the old traditional epidemiology which is social distancing, closures, various ways that we can limit our interaction.
interaction with people. Unfortunately, you know, this is not high tech. This is uh, low tech interventions, but they work. They work, you know, as we heard to flatten the curve, keep the, the spread of the virus uh, slowing down to the point we don't overwhelm our health systems. I mean, that's the real big challenge. I mean, technology can help in many ways because people can go to the web to learn more, to help decide whether they might be at risk or they can use social technology to engage with people while they're in isolation. So technology has a role. Um, data science has a role here. But when it comes to actually limiting the spread, unfortunately, technology is not going to do too much to keep you from interacting with other people. And so that's really what, what people need to be remembering is that, you know, basic shoe leather uh, epidemiology and public health is all about trying to limit sort of your contact with those that might have the virus. John, incredibly quickly, on March the 5th, you said that you didn't think this was a pandemic, just based on what you were seeing. The World Health Organization decided to denote it a pandemic. Is this now a pandemic in your mind, based on the data that you are collecting? And is it important to distinguish this? Because I do think that also made people go, whoa. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, it's somewhat semantics. We were seeing transmission happening in many parts of the globe. But now at this point, with this amount of sustained transmission in so many different countries and the expectation that this virus is really going to traverse you know, the globe and, and no particular population will be unlikely to be exposed, it's, it's really, you know, we're in a pandemic phase, absolutely. Um, and, you know, how that changes our, our sort of outlook. I mean, hopefully this means that people really will take these events seriously. And, and will follow the sort of recommendations of the public health agencies that are really working night and day to try to figure out how to slow the spread of this virus. Yeah, if it was only useful to galvanize leadership and action from nation's leadership, then necessary, otherwise semantics. John, such a yes. pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. John Brownstein there, the founder of Health Map. All right, let me give you a quick look at what we're seeing for US markets at this moment. We've lost a bit of steam here. We're still up three, three and a half percent, but not the five, five and a half percent at the open. More analysis to come. Stay with us. To first move, we do see U.S. markets up around 3% right now, so losing a little bit of steam. Ha! In the last two minutes, we're now above 4%. These markets. Brian Belsky joins me now, Chief Investment Strategist at BMO Capital Markets. Brian, I can't blink without losing or gaining 1% at this moment. Has fear overtaken any fundamental analysis here, and does that matter at this moment? Great question. Uh, honored to be on with you and to speak to your to your crew today around the world. I would say this: we authored a piece uh, February 27th entitled "Epidemic and Fear." We also authored a piece the same day: "Panic is not an investment strategy." Clearly, in the two weeks that have followed, uh, both of those uh, reports unfortunately have been correct. Uh, fear continues to. Uh, engulf, let's say, investors, uh, the market, mom and pop walking down Main Street. Uh, this is nothing to do with fundamentals. And we wrote another piece last night uh, in terms of our, con our conviction is resolute, but the template notwithstanding. So what does that mean, Julia? It means that there is no quote unquote magic bullet 
that's going to stop the markets from receding, unfortunately, because this is all about fear and rhetoric, quite frankly. And we're dealing with the unknown. We're, we are in a society that can't help itself from watching its iPhone device every three seconds and reading bullet points and not saying that the information is bad, Julia, but we're reacting to that information instead of what I like to, what I like to call the three P's of investments, which are perspective, poise, and process. Now is not the time to be making binary decisions, meaning buy or sell. Now's the time to be speaking to your financial advisor, your asset allocator, your relationship manager, in terms of positioning yourself to make sure that coming out of this, you are gonna be owning the best equities in the world, which we believe most of them are in the United States. There's some in Canada as well. So we think now is the time to be shoring up your positions and be much more diligent in terms of what you're doing with respect to your portfolio. You know, perspective and poise, stuff investment. I think we need to incorporate that in our real lives as best we can, Brian, quite frankly. And to your other point, I do have the best team in the world who are awesome. Um, have you sold anything in the, in the pullback that... Wow. It's a, okay. it's, a great, it's a great question. So we run seven equity portfolios, five for our clients in Canada and two in the United States. Because we made some positional changes in terms of our strategy, uh, we are going to be publishing some changes, but not until after the close today, uh, principally because we want to see how things shape up. We are longer-term investors. We still believe, by the way, that we are in a 20-year secular bull market. Yes, you cannot deny that a cyclical bear, meaning a very short-term bear market, has occurred because we are now down more than 20% from our recent peak in the S&P 500. That's the quote-unquote textbook definition, Julia. But given the fact of the duration and accelerated duration in in terms of move that we've seen from the from the upside i think from from the from the highs i'm sorry i think we are going to see the same thing going back so i i believe that this is something we've never seen in my career over, over 30 years and i think the recovery because it's been so fear led that I believe that fundamentals will ultimately reign supreme and investors will come back to equities and the recovery that we're going to see in the coming months is going to be one for the record books, just like the sell-off has been. Yeah, it's fascinating. As you said, there is no template. You used the template word. There is no model for what we're seeing here in the pockets of shutdown. Brian, very quickly, you said also that you're waiting to see how today plays out. What are you watching just in the short term? What do you want to see and what, how will you be guided by this session today? Well, let's see how we respond. Uh, again, uh, nothing from monetary policy or fiscal policy is going to change this. We just need the markets to settle down. We need emotions to settle down. But most importantly, we need to start to employ the law of diminishing returns in terms of headlines. We need to see less headlines on coronavirus or COVID-19, and we need to see people settling down and doing what Americans do best, remain resolute, strong, and convicted. I feel so much better for speaking to you. Brian Belsky, a pleasure to have you on, the Chief Investment Strategist at BMO Capital Markets. Thank you so much. And again, big heart to my team, who are awesome. We're back after this. We're higher by 3%. More analysis to follow. Welcome back to First Move. Another day, another stock market swing. We are up this time. I don't want to make light of it, but we are higher 
by uh, some 2.7% on the Dow, 3.2% on the Nasdaq, as you can see there. Claire Sebastian joins me. Claire, I made the point earlier and I'll reiterate, building expectations that policymakers are waking up here, but also simply bouncing from incredibly beaten up levels. Yeah, you know, the extraordinary thing uh, about what we've seen recently is that it, that it took just 16 trading sessions for the S&P 500 to go from record highs into a bear market. So it's so very much a bounce to be expected uh, off the back of that. And there has been some better news overnight. We now know that the Senate is going to be in session next week despite a planned recess. We've had Secretary Mnuchin on television this morning saying that the negotiations are going well. Uh, a very sort of strong, uh, you know, manifesto on we'll do whatever it takes. He kept saying there will be liquidity. This is not like the financial crisis and things will bounce back. Uh, so that is sort of helping to lift sentiment as well. I think the Fed's move yesterday adding, uh, you know, one and a half trillion in liquidity to the financial system over the course of two days is sort of playing in late as well. But we are off the highs quite significantly now, Julia. And I think uh, th this is still, as you made the point at the top of the show, this is still very fragile, A, because of the emotion, and B, because a growing number of economists are now coming out and saying, we do expect there to be a recession. That's defined as two quarters of contraction. So that is really what, what investors are now grappling with. Yeah, it's the length of that recession that we mm. simply don't know at this stage. And all we've tried to do throughout this hour is perhaps take some of the fear out of it and uh, bring uh, some calm. The problem is the markets don't have that right now. We can't predict whether we'll even finish this session in the green, Claire. Expectations for stimulus, potentially even a one percentage point rate cut. The Fed acted yesterday to calm the bond markets too. We are seeing greater coordination, even if that's accidental. Yeah, and that certainly is what the, the markets have been looking for as well. Coordination both between governments and central banks and coordination internationally as well. Secretary Mnuchin did say uh, when, he, when he did this interview this morning that he has been talking on the phone uh, to the leaders of the G7. So, so that is something certainly uh, positive. But, but look, as yet, the Trump administration has yet to unveil this new stimulus uh, bill. So I think people are still waiting. There is some frustration out there that, that while other governments uh, have acted, they have yet to do so. But, but overall, Julia, this market does seem to have more of an impetus to sell right now than to buy. I think we really saw a shift in tone yesterday, uh, which is an extraordinary day down at the exchange where, where we, we tipped into a bear market. People were, were, were genuinely, you know, sort of uh, concerned about how this is going to go and how the uncertainty is going to play out. Shell-shocked. We don't have a model for this. Great expectations on DC. What can they come up with? That was a great point too, Claire. Great to have you with us. Thank you for that. All right. We are higher at this moment by some 25 to 3%. We'll be back in a couple of hours' time with The Express. But for now, that's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. Try and get some rest this weekend. It's great to have you with us. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.